Hello and welcome to episode nine of the Researchers in Conversation podcast. I'm Caroline Norbury from Traxis and each episode I chat to a researcher about how they came to their current role, their research and experiences within their chosen field. In the previous episode I chatted to Professor Katie Slocum and got a real insight into primate field research and what studying animals can tell us about being human. I would highly recommend taking a listen to Katie's episode and let us know what you thought about it. Now on to today's episode. Professor Deirdre Murray is here with me today from University College Cork, where she is Head of Department. She is also Clinical Lead for Paediatrics at Cork University Hospital. Deirdre studied medicine, graduating from UCC in 1995, and went on to specialise in paediatrics in intensive care at leading international paediatric hospitals, the Royal British Children's Hospital and the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. On returning to Ireland at UCC, she took up a research post and completed a PhD in 2008 on early continuous EEG in neonatal brain injury. Her thesis resulted in a number of important peer-reviewed publications, including the notable Paediatrics. Deirdre's research is centred on neonatal brain injury with the aim to improve long-term neurological outcomes through improved detection, prediction, and early intervention. Deirdre is the principal investigator of the Cork Baseline Birth Cohort Study, funded by the National Children's Research Centre. Baseline is the first and only longitudinal birth cohort in Ireland, looking at over 2,000 Irish children, with collaborative research focusing on allergy, obesity, and genetic programming. In 2012, Deirdre was the first Irish paediatrician to be awarded the prestigious HRB Clinician Scientist Award, for her ongoing research on biomarkers in neonatal brain injury through the BiHive study. A year later, she became one of nine principal investigators in the Irish Centre for Fetal and Neonatal Translational Research, known as the Infant Centre. In addition to her busy work life, Deirdre has an active home life too with her general practitioner husband Paul and three children. Although her work-life balance is not always ideal, she's definitely working on it. Welcome Deirdre, to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Caroline. So there's a lot to talk about there, but uh, what I'd like to start with is your first sort of touch into paediatrics. What, what were you thinking as you're growing up? Uh, why medicine? Why paediatrics? Okay. I think I was, I was probably like halfway through my secondary school when I realised that I was very interested in, you know, I suppose how the body works and we did a subject that was, it was a sports science subject in school, but I was fascinated with the muscles and the physiology and that sort of thing. And I think medicine allows you to, you know, if, you, if you're interested in science, but you also like dealing with people, then it's a, it's a good option. You know, you can, you can be a scientist, but you don't have to be a total science nerd, but you, and, but you like, you like that science element and the kind of curiosity around how things work, but also that you like, you like to deal with people. So I think that's what drew me to it. And so really by kind of my final year, two years in secondary school, I, I knew I wanted to do medicine and I was lucky enough to get into UCC. And that was a six year course and best years of my life oh, excellent. <laughs> <Great fun. laughs> that's good not all uh, hard work then <laughs> no no not at all um and made great friends there I think you're you're in a small class in medicine so you get to know each other really well and it's a six-year course and 
you know, everybody crams for the exams and then goes out and enjoys themselves afterwards. So, no, we we had a great time. And then I think the first three years back then tended to be very much science based. So it's um, the basic science subjects. And then for the next three years, you're you're in the hospitals and you're getting to meet patients. And I really enjoyed any exposure that I had on the um, pediatric wards when we had to deal with children. I just found that a lot more fun and, you know, enjoyed it. And then I think what really sealed it for me was when I was in in fourth year, we had the opportunity to do an elective overseas. So there's a charity in Cork where the students raise money during the year and then they go to um, mostly African countries for the summer. So I did an elective in Zimbabwe and with a very with two very good friends of mine and what we realized over the course of that summer was we got a lot of experience we were allowed to really help out in all the different wards but I was consistently drawn to the pediatric wards I love to do we we would we were allowed you know we could swap amongst each other and I always swapped into doing the children's ward and my other friend always swapped into being on call for the labor ward so she's gone on to be a obstetrician and I've done pediatrics and then the third girl didn't really mind she did a bit of everything and she's a general practitioner okay so, <laughs> so quite early on your fates were all seemed to be seen yeah, by this experience yeah. yeah so I think it was really good practical experience where we could really see what the job was like um, and so from then on then I knew I wanted to do pediatrics wasn't something you had to consciously decide it was just something that you naturally got drawn into yeah yeah no I didn't there wasn't too much doubt in my mind then yeah I knew that's what I wanted to do. You've got a foot in two camps in terms of being connected with UCC and connected with the hospital at the same time. How does that come about? Yeah, so I suppose once I finished college, then I went into your clinical training. But I always enjoyed the reading up around a subject, you know, so if you saw a case going back and reading about it and learning about it and, and questioning, then why, why might that have happened? Uh, that was an unusual case. I'm going to read up about it. And then started to write papers, uh, which I always enjoyed and look and enjoyed the like looking at data, you know, collecting data about patients and looking at it and seeing, trying to figure out why something was happening. So I think the curiosity about what's happening with your patients. And also there's an element of when you're in clinical practice, a lot of our management is protocols like there's there's definitely an art in interacting with the patient and getting the history and figuring out what's going on but your management then tends to be quite protocol driven yeah Um, and I think doing research then allows you to think outside the box a little bit and say well do I have to stick to this protocol is is there a better way of managing my patient and what's the research what's the evidence for what I'm doing maybe if I studied these patients I could figure out why they're getting sick or why these patients don't respond to the treatment and so it's questioning that that ability you know I think that um that that ability to look a bit further into what's happening with your patients what what was what drew me to research so in all my training so I did my clinical pediatric training and then I specialized um, in pediatric intensive care in Bristol and then in Melbourne so throughout there was always times where I would look at you know write papers and present data and get more involved in the research and then after Melbourne I wanted to do then a dedicated research post where I you know could just focus on doing research and I was really lucky enough to get put in contact with Professor Geraldine Boylan who's the director of our infant research centre here in Cork 
and she invited me then to take part in a project and to be the research fellow on one of her projects looking at early EEG um, in neonatal encephalopathy and that was really so the next three years were just spent on that project and I was really lucky at the end of that then that a joint appointment came up in the um, UCC which was 50% clinical and 50% research which was perfect yeah wow okay it sounds like you got what you needed at the right sort of time yeah yeah no it all seems like in retrospect everything worked out fine but (laughs) I won't say there wasn't bumps along the way and you know but I I, you know in the end things work out yeah Yeah. well I guess it helps you have that attitude that things will work out yeah so you mentioned bumps in the roads what sort of things did you come up against that were challenging shall we say so I had trained in paediatric intensive care but the, there wasn't a paediatric, but Cork was where we wanted to end up. I suppose my husband is from Cork and he particularly wanted to end up back in Cork. And so did I. And actually, in retrospect, it's a great place to live and we're close to our families and we have a good lifestyle here. But there wasn't a paediatric intensive care unit in Cork. OK, so <laughs> slightly limiting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the post that I had was general paediatrics. OK. Um, yeah. So. I had to really, you know, I suppose upskill again in the general pediatric things, which is diff- quite different to dealing with the really sickest um, mm. children. Um, and, but having said that, I always enjoyed general pediatrics. And some of the things that, one of the things I didn't like in pediatric intensive care, even though it was really intellectually stimulating and a great specialty, is that you didn't have as much patient interaction because as soon as the babies or the children woke up, and got better they were out of the ICU yeah yeah okay so I think I'm really you know I do really enjoy my clinical the clinical part of my job as well now and that post then allowed me to develop the research side of the job and the teaching and do you find because you are doing both both sort of sides which one informs the other side more is it your is it your research that's getting filtered into your clinical or your clinical is then feeding or is it a, is it a bo- going both ways because you're in this quite unique scenario where you um, have the ability to find something that you want you want to question to that you can then go off and organize getting that answered mm-hmm. yeah yeah I think it's as you said it's both really yeah yeah mm-hmm. you're constantly you're yeah thinking about them both at the same time which is the nice thing about the job yeah yeah and and what you said earlier about I imagine it, you're a different beast, if I may say it that way, in that I imagine lots of clinical staff, as you say, there are protocols in place, will accept this is the protocol, this is what, you know, this is, this is how it works. I, I'm sure it's not as rigid as that, but I, I'm imagining that someone who's got a research hat on as well is always potentially thinking, ah, oh, but what if we could do it this way? Or this is something that's not perhaps fitting the protocol. Is that, am I reading that correctly? Yeah. And, and sometimes, particularly in, in pediatrics, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not, yeah, I can't speak for adult medicine, but when you actually go and look at the evidence, so say if somebody says to you, oh, this is the diktat, you know, you must treat this in this way. And you go, okay, actually, what's that based on? You pull out the papers and it was like, you know, a small study done in the 1980s that was never replicated, but sudden somehow got into, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> an urban myth of this is what you have to do. And you go, actually, sure. not a lot of evidence for that. And, you know, if you really 
want to study that we should set about and do a different study and find out yeah so one aspect of of your interest was this the, the neonatal sort of injury side how did you get into that sort of specific area when I was in Bristol, I had done a study looking at EEG on children who were, you know, waking post-op cardiac surgery where they were sedated. And so we had looked at EEG, which, is, you know, allows you to study the brainwave activity. So I had a bit of background in that and thought it was interesting. And then Geraldine offered me the post, which was looking at neonatal EEG. And really before Geraldine Boylan, nobody was really doing continuous EEGs on small newborn babies. So it was kind of something that she has really pioneered, but now a lot of centers understand the benefit of it and the ones that can do it are trying to do it. So um, it was an exciting project to be part of. Um, It allowed me to look at EEG and also it was in in an intensive care environment. So it was in the neonatal intensive care unit. So it ticked a lot of boxes for me. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, Geraldine sounds like she was quite pivotal, somebody that perhaps maybe would be a mentor figure in in that. that Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think I was very lucky. I think I was her first PhD student. And so we still work together a lot. You know, we still collaborate all the time on lots of different projects. Yeah. And she's the director of the infant center here and I'm, I'm one of the principal investigators. So we, yeah, no, it's, she's certainly been a very strong, powerful mentor for me. Yeah. And so as part of the infant center, what's that mainly been about? What's the aim of the center? Yeah. So it's focused on perinatal research, which is, you know, looking at pregnant moms and their babies, and then also following up those children because we know now that you know the, those first nine months the in utero nine months are extremely important for your health for the rest of your life there's a whole body of research now on the developmental origins of adult health and disease and so things you know the the things that happen to you in the womb and for the first year of life will have far-reaching consequences so we are now, we started, initially we were the Irish Neonatal and, and Fetal and Neonatal Translation Research Centre, but in the last number of years now we have changed ourselves to being the, a maternal and child health research centre. So the focus is still perinatal, but yeah. it's also bringing out the importance of following those babies into childhood. So that brings me nicely onto the cohort study that you're looking at. That seems like it's going to produce and has produced quite a wealth of rich data, quite a nice thing to be involved in. How hard was that to get funding for and get the whole programme off the ground? Yeah, again, I was really lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had just, it was actually the first grant that I applied for. So I'd taken up the post as a senior lecturer and the opportunity came along in that the, Professor Louise Kenny was one of the obstetricians here in Cork, and she had been funded to, to do a study on mums, pregnant mums, looking for risk, risk factors for preeclampsia. And so she had recruited, she was just beginning to recruit a cohort of 2,000 mothers and collect really detailed data on them, you know, all their clinical histories, medication, you know, do measurements on their babies during pregnancy, do blood, you know, biobank their blood. And she just contacted us and said, look, would you be interested in following up the babies? We're going to have so much information about the mums. Um, and we said yes. And then we went, we had about a month to get an application in, which 
it was very long. She was like, well, th- there's a call out. You know, we, we looked around it to see who might fund this. And the National Children's Research Centre had a call out with the closing date four weeks from then. So it was a lot of work getting that together. But thankfully, and it was the first time that they had funded a project outside Dublin. Oh, OK. Yeah, um, because they're mostly up until then, they were the Children's Research Centre attached to the Crumlin Children's Hospital. But they had decided to rebrand themselves as being a national research centre. OK. They wanted to fund outside Dublin. So um, we were lucky enough uh, that they they funded us for the initial recruitment of the babies and following them up for the first two years. And then we went back to them again and they agreed to fund us to follow them out to five years of age. In order to get that sort of second tier of funding, was that fairly straightforward because you had already got some data that you could show them? Yeah, I think it was because we had, a re- you know, I definitely, you know, even though I was the principal investigator, I was really just leading a team of experts. Yeah. Um, and they, we were we were lucky that we had experts in the areas of um, paediatric allergy, paediatric nutrition and genetics and also uh very good obstetric researcher as well on the team and I suppose we showed in the first few years that we could work well together and recruit these babies do very detailed assessments and collect good data and start writing papers so we had you know we we were starting to publish data then and then so they I think that was what helped us to get funded for the following the next tranche of funding then came through yeah and and as you rightly say these Big projects rely on lots of expertise. When did you realise that actually, I don't know whether you do find it fun, but sort of managing a team and bringing everything together was something that you were, A, perhaps good at, and B, you might have enjoyed that as well? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I do think, I mean, I like, I do like working with people. I think that's the best part of the job. And obviously, you know, and uh, whether really enjoy spending time with my patients but also the research team and I think bringing people on and you know having ideas and developing a project is is very exciting so yeah no certainly an element of my job that I enjoy yeah and you said obviously there the patient relationship I've seen where you've been previously interviewed in the Irish Times and you say that you know one of the greatest things is is about when children or, or infants go out of the hospital setting and you know they've, they've obviously recovered or got through whatever it is that they've experienced but I'm imagining that is not always the case uh, how have you managed to deal with not so happy outcomes for children yeah I mean I think you know I think when you're in medicine you you understand that diseases happen you know um they have you know they happen all the time there's a certain rate of you know one in 2000 people will get this one in 300 people will get this so they they happen so our job is to treat those problems if we can um and you know thankfully in pediatrics most of the time children get quick they get sick very quickly but they bounce back very quickly as well and they're you know you know as soon as they're better because they're sitting up looking for their toys and they're smiling and they've forgotten all about how sick they were um but then there are yeah absolutely there's cases when we know we can't treat the illness um and they we we can't prevent this child getting sicker or even passing away but what then our job is to make it easier and i think if you can 
work with the family and you know communicate with them and make explain to them what's happening and be really open with them and provide make the child as comfortable as possible or give them the best quality of life for the time they have then you still feel like you've done a good job um yeah so you know that's what we're here for yeah for sure yeah has it been anything that you have found more difficult than expected or have you always had this no this is I know how this is this is going to be and I will yeah I think the the difficult times is if we feel if I feel that you know if if there's a case where you feel like oh god I should have done that differently or maybe if you've you know if there's a reason why you think oh god maybe something I did didn't help that much that that's difficult and then the other thing I suppose that can be really difficult in pediatrics is if you have cases of um you know non-accidental injury or something where it's just really bad social circumstances that um led to this child being hurt or injured yeah they're the most difficult times I think yeah for sure Uh, yeah but again you're just focusing on trying to make the patient better and you know know what you can do know what you can't do yeah and because you've spent quite a bit of research in the neonatal area as you said earlier it's that perinatal and then that first year is critical for everything thereafter how much impact has your research um had in that area have you, have you been able to make some some even if they're small differences small differences to protocols I, I think probably where per, I personally might have had the most impact and it is as you as you r- rightly say it's tiny you're just moving that dial a little bit you know yeah. I think very few people make a, you know, really dramatic uh, change to what, how we um, manage patients, but just moving the dial a little bit would be the recognition of the um, disease that I spend most of my time looking at is the hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and children. Traditionally, we would say, you know, the thought would have been that children with moderate or severe encephalopathy have problems later on but mild encephalopathy are fine they don't have long-term problems we don't have to think about them when we're bringing out new treatments and then oh back in kind of 2008 I suppose people um there was like really clear evidence that cooling babies after birth was uh helpful and prevented disability um but because mild infants were felt to be um have a normal outcome they weren't included in the trials so people were have really in and, and it's still the case in some centres that they were only cooling moderate and severe encephalopathy and mild infants were just sort of said, look, he'll be fine. We don't need to do anything. But, but because we had been studying these babies for a long time, we had good follow up on them. And actually, they, you know, the mild encephalopathy are they do OK initially. They're probably still within the normal range at two years of age. But what we found is at five years of age, they have significant problems. And a high percentage of them were having difficulties in school, needing extra help or, or having behavioural problems. So I suppose our research, we've written a, you know, a number of papers now showing that their outcome isn't normal. So I think there is a move now to cool those babies as well, to offer them treatment. And I think we may have helped a little bit in though that decision, shift of decision. Yeah. So, yeah, that's probably the biggest thing. That sounds, no, that sounds quite significant, actually. <laughs> How do you decide on 
whether they are suffering with this, how easy is it to detect and then to sort of determine how bad it is? Yeah, so traditionally, like this is the difficult thing actually because most of the time, so we we do early EEGs, so the uh, where you're doing brainwave activity from very early on and you can see the differences in their brain activity, but a lot of centres don't have access to that, so they would go by clinical examination and it can be difficult on clinical examination because you're looking at the neurological status of a baby. They're not going to be able to tell you, you know, talk to you and tell you that they're feeling a bit confused or dazed. So you're exam- doing it a clinical exam. So it's not always easy. And I think we would use traditional scoring systems. And I certainly using those scoring systems, you do miss babies. You know, people think a baby's fine, but actually they're not. They've ha- they have suffered injury. And I think more and more now when people are doing early MRI scans, they're seeing that even those babies that look fine in the first few hours can have abnormal MRIs and white matter injuries on their MRI scans. Yeah. So it's not easy. So that's the other thing I suppose that we've been doing a lot of work in is trying to find blood-based biomarkers that can differentiate between the different grades. Yeah. How close are you to finding a biomarker? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> or how far away? <laughs> no, we are no, so we have we have narrowed it down. What what a lot of what we found is that biochemically, so and again it's coming back to people traditionally would separate these babies out quite clearly and say, oh mild, they're they're different. We don't have to worry about them. And the moderate ones, they're the ones we have to worry about and cool. And actually, when we've done lots of different biochemical analysis, you know, metabolomics and different proteins and microRNAs, the mild and the moderates are almost identical. Oh, wow. So I think our clinical grading system is wrong, that we are separating these babies. And actually, they're a lot more similar than what we think. Okay. Wow, that's that's very interesting, isn't it? To to get that insight into what you think looks different on the outside, but on on the inside of what's going on within that baby, it's the same. Yeah, yeah very very interesting. What are the risk factors of a baby being in this hypoxic state to start with? I, I mean, how how well do you know that a baby's like to have any mm-hmm. sort of um, yeah, outcome? I mean, that, that's the problem that it's really difficult to predict which baby's going to get into trouble. And, right. you know, if we knew which baby was going to get into trouble, they they had an elective cesarean section, then that would avoid it. But unfortunately, we don't. Um, and so it's I like, I suppose, one way of describing it is if you can imagine, you know, a thousand people setting out to do a marathon, like, you know, being delivered, giving a baby being born is almost like you're you're putting them and mum through a marathon mm. effort. And some people will, you know, go through that fine and other people will collapse halfway through. So anything that interferes with the delivery of oxygen to the baby during the delivery or before the, you know, before the delivery or during labor. So that could be something that affects the placenta. If the placenta shifts away from the uterine wall, if it shears away and there's a bleed, if there's something interrupts the umbilical cord, um, if the baby gets stuck on the way out, any of those things can prevent oxygen getting to the yeah. baby, particularly the baby's brain. Yeah. So what, what I'm hearing is it's really all about what happens in the delivery room um, mm. rather than prior to it. Yeah. Or in the in the 
day, possibly even a day or two, but you more usually it's in the in a few hours just before the baby's born. Mm. So where where do you take it from here then? If you, obviously there's still a bit of work to be done on the biomarkers, what are your what are your hopes for future research and outcomes? Yeah, so our our focus now at the moment is on the the outcome actually and uh, better ways of measuring outcome. Oh, so, okay. And some of this is driven by the fact that, as I said before, those babies that looked okay at two, but when we go to five, they're actually struggling in school. So they have subtle cognitive difficulties that you don't pick up on the screening that we do at two years of age. Because at two, most of the traditional ways of assessing a baby is based on their developmental milestones. So are they walking? Do they have a few words? So it's more about language and motor skills rather than actually thinking skills. Mm. Um, And so, as you can imagine, it's hard to figure out if a baby is actually good at problem solving at two years of age. But we are working on a way of doing that using um, a touchscreen device. So, you know, the the advent of tablets, you know, we, we could see it in the clinic that babies, you know, before they were even talking to us, we're sitting there swiping through yeah. photographs and being able to find their own little apps and play games on their tablet. So that seemed like a really good way to me of figuring out which babies are smart and <laughs> are able to solve puzzles. So we've developed a touchscreen tablet-based assessment. It doesn't have any language associated with it. So you don't, we don't give the babies any instruction. We show them the tablet. We let them play with it and see if they can progress through the tasks. So, so is that, it all, when you say there's no language, is it just pictorial? And have they got a? Yeah, so there's little objects on the screen that they press and they get a response, and then they have to find the object on the next screen, and then they move through it trying to look at. So we're looking at ways of um, measuring their selective attention, their processing speed, their working memory, things like that. So that the advantage of that is that if we want to. F- get better ways of preventing those subtle cognitive difficulties that don't come to light until a child really goes to school and has to, the academic pressure increases Mm. on them and then they start to fail. We want to be able to detect those back at two years of age. And the the advantage of that is that if you're you're trying to look for new therapies to prevent brain injury, uh, you don't have to wait for five years to find out whether it worked or not. Yep. you could find out at two years so it speeds up like that that the cooling therapy that we that I was talking about earlier it took 30 years from that to get to the bedside it took 30 years of research oh wow from people realizing in animals that it worked okay all animals then big animals then we'll try it in a few babies and see it's safe then we'll do another study and then we'll do another study and then we'll follow them up for five years it took a long time to get it to the bedside. So is that just the nature of having, you know, you, when you're dealing with vulnerable babies, you want to make sure whatever you're doing is going to improve their chances, don't you? Is it because of that that it takes so long that you have to test it so vigorously? Or are there other reasons that it just takes so long to get to? <laughs> you know, a lot of medical advances um, do take a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, to move from animal. Um, and then it is difficult 
as you said, it's a vulnerable population. You have to make sure absolutely, you know, you may have to make sure, absolutely sure it's safe. It's probably more difficult to get funding to study, you know, research in babies that is for cancer or diabetes where there's big pharma involved. Um, so, it, but it does take time. But if we, especially if we're looking for something that is going to change their their academic ability at five years, then it, that takes even longer then because you, you're giving a trial and most, most funding agencies will only fund you for five years. So you spend two years recruiting, you're allowed to follow them up for two years and that's it then. You have to go and get another grant if you yeah. want to follow them at school age. Yeah, it's a, it's a process, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, to, having a better assessment at two years of age. And the other important thing is that um, if you, standard tests that we use, say the, the standard kind of developmental assessments, it's all about motor and language. And if a child is not from an English speaking home, they won't do well on those tests. Often with the trials, they will say, oh, we had to exclude all children from non-English speaking families. So if you're doing a trial in, um, say, the centre of London, that could be a big proportion of your of your children. You know, and, sure. yeah, and yes, those children are going to speak English when they go to school. But for the first two years of life, they're at home with mum and they they mightn't have very much exposure to English. So with a touchscreen tablet, you can, if there's no language involved, so yeah. we can test those babies from all different cultures and homes. Which is great, isn't it? Because that's really what you want to make it as accessible as possible. Yeah. Are you already seeing differences between children at two using the app? Have you got to that stage where you've, you've got some data in? Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've tested about um, 300 children now. And so we've got nice normal reference ranges for what, you know, it took us a while to develop an app that they would be engaging for them and that the, the tasks were appropriate. But now we've got a nice application that correlates well with the standard developmental assessment test. And um, we've got nice reference ranges for what's normal, and what's not normal. So I think going forward now, we'll be able to use that in, in our studies um, to follow up these babies. That's a, that's that's really exciting, isn't it? Before, obviously, the tech, there were there protocols in place for sort of pen and paper or some sort of diagrams that you might have done that you've then imported into the app, or have you literally started from scratch and decided what are we going to put in it? Yeah, we sort of started from scratch um, <laughs> because a lot of the other ones are language based. Okay. So we wanted something that no, we don't want to have to give yeah. any instructions to these children. It has to be completely language free. That was what we start, said from the start. So we started off with just seeing what children could do with them, with the, te- with the tablet. How old, you know, we, we, you know, we started with them doing a, a survey of our parents to say, you know, what age, can, how old is your baby? Can they use a touchscreen tablet? Can they swipe? Can they unlock an icon? All of those things. And, you know, really from 12 months of age, they interact meaningfully with the tablet. And by two, the majority of children could could swipe, could tap, could find their own icons. So we knew then that, okay, we can use those things to start testing babies. So then we started to develop the icon, the items and then tested them in multiple children looking at what worked and what didn't work. So it was, yeah, no, it was kind of from scratch. <laughs> 
<laughs> that sounds interesting on many levels, not least by by the fact that you've got to interact with a tech company that perhaps you hadn't done before. What was that experience like? Yeah, so that's actually interesting as well, because I'm lucky that my uh, my brother has a computer games company. Oh, in- wow. yeah. that's excellent. <laughs> How very fortuitous. I know, yeah. So this is really just me both of us chatting and me talking to him going you know I just think there must be a better way of assessing these kids and if we could use a tablet and so his his programmers helped us with that yeah no oh, absolutely great. yeah no no so we we definitely we couldn't have done it on our own but I think that's I think that's the way that we can make advances in medicine is start working with with other disciplines with engineering and with computing that's that's how we're going to move things forward yeah, I think the advances in tech and just, um, I don't know about you, but my, my children are now grown adults. But in the time that I've had children, the tech has just been unbelievable. As you say, that whole, I remember being on a plane quite some years ago now, but it didn't feel that long, watching this baby on, a, on someone's lap for the first time. I'd seen this, you know, this natural swiping behaviour. So the babies are already there. <laughs> We've all we've all got to catch up, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah the, like the 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 toys that we use for our kind of standard developmental assessment, these children don't even recognise them as toys. You know, mm-hmm. they're wooden jigsaws and stringing uh, beads onto a thread and stuff like that. They, they they don't know what to do with them, but they do know what to do with the tablet. <laughs> Yeah, yes, we, we live in... Unfortunately, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but no. we lagged <laughs> behind, they've moved on. Yeah, that's where we're at. We need to get in front of the curve. <laughs> so um, in terms of, where, of what a typical day might look like for you, Deirdre, um, is there a typical day? Because it sounds like you've got quite a lot of interesting things going on all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah most days I will, you know, sometimes we'll have early meetings you know, trying to organize things, but mostly I try and come in and see my patients on the ward. And if I, we take it in turns to be on take. So if I've been on take, then I'll have all the new patients from the day before. So that tends to be a longer morning of rounds. And then the, there's always paperwork associated with that as well, obviously. And then the afternoons, if I have a clinic day, I'll have clinic in the afternoon and that's kind of two days a week. And then the other days, then I'll have time to meet the um, research team, meet the PhD students, teach our medical students. So we have to keep that going as well. And um, and then trying to just talk about new projects. And then occasionally I will have a block of time where I can sit down and read a paper or write papers and that. <laughs> Does it suit you that you are your roles are you know mean that you're switching quite a lot is and and I imagine you've got to be reasonably decently organised to carry those different tasks around with you all the time. Uh, yeah. Does it does it suit your personality this whole way of working? I think I think so. I think um, I yeah I'm probably happier if I'm when I'm busy and I think I, it's never boring like never like. <laughs> The only thing is I'll probably, yeah, I probably have too many balls that I'm juggling and trying to think, you know, trying to find time to say, no, I need to set time aside to do that properly. That's the the challenge, I think. 
Yeah. Are you a person that can say no if somebody's going, can you just do, because, you know, busy people often attract other people going, can you just do this? Or are you, are you pretty good at going? Something no. I've learned to do and now I consciously do it because I know there is no point in saying I'm going to do something if I don't have the time to do it. So I'm, yeah, getting, getting, I was I have to say I would, that would have been one thing I was guilty of is taking on too much but now I'm tr- I'm learning I, I can't keep doing that and I have to say okay no I'm sorry look I'm I'm gonna have to ask you um, you know I might ask someone else to help you or I might you still try and help somebody but you might say look I can't take it on but I will give you a pointer in the direction of who might be able to help you and get them sorted out yeah well, in that case, that leads me conveniently to say, well, thank you for saying yes to coming on the podcast. <laughs> I really, really, really do appreciate it. Um, it's been it's been great hearing a bit more about your research and your general life with the, the different projects that you've got going at the moment. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Caroline. Thanks for asking me. Thanks to Deirdre for sharing her stories on this week's episode. I certainly enjoyed listening and hope you did too. You may also want to check out my previous conversations with the other eight researchers we've been lucky enough to have on the show. Thanks also to Jeremy Jones for providing the music and to you, of course, the listener. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please do leave a five star rating and review on your podcast app. Next time up, Sam Royal is here with me to chat about his career as a technician at Salford University. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.